Here we are today, another episode of The Intersection. Today I'm joined by a particularly special guest. His name is Nate Jones. If you know Nate, you may think he's a special guest from being a partner in Andreessen Horowitz for eight years or living out of his car, homeless, no degree, moving to Silicon Valley and striving his way up to launching his own successful ventures or being in the blockchain world since 2015 where he's had business discussions with the Coinbase founders or the Dapper Labs people or even working closely with Nas or investing in music at Royal. Many, many things about Nate's life that are amazing to touch on. And Nate happens to be, in my opinion, a particularly special expert on the intersection and fusion of technology and culture, which is the ethos of how I choose what guests to bring on this show. So welcome, Nate, to the intersection. Thanks for having me. So to kick it off, uh, you've mentioned the typical archetype of a technical genius using code to create software, but this overlooked cultural genius who uses different tools. Tell us more. Um... I don't so much know if it's tools that define what a cultural genius does, more mm. so than um, building a new skeuomorphic on culture, which is how do you take how do you take the language of art, music, fashion, expression in general, or how energy is communicated between human beings? How do you tap into that and create a new shorthand? And so. The most talented people of our time kind of borrow pieces uh, of everything. They reinterpret it to what's going on in the time, and then they create a new shorthand. And they usually hack their way to distribution through whatever's available to them. Usually very, very crude instrumentation. We can, we can look back at the obvious, obvious example of hip-hop plugging in turntables into borrowed or stolen electricity in parks in the, in the South Bronx uh, and having, you know, midnight street parties, block parties, parties in the park is where the whole culture was kind of codified. Um, but again, using crude tools, a turntable, some microphones, Technics 1200s, uh, mixers, um, borrowed electricity, um, poor kids in the South Bronx in the 70s, figuring out a way um, to create a new cultural shorthand that expressed the feeling, you know what I'm saying, the feeling of the times. Mm-hmm. And because it was so resonant, it caught on very quickly because the new communication medium was very efficient because I was, you know, I was, I was, I was, it was, it was just more forceful. You had words over rhymes, over beats that were made from, you know, made from different albums being sampled, uh, scratching, uh, break loops, all of that kind of stuff. All of these is crude. All of these things were crude instrumentation used to create the new cultural shorthand. That's just one very obvious example that I use all the time, and and maybe it's a bit of a trite example, but very obvious. Well, speaking of hip hop, you were a b-boy. You got into graffiti. You were writing rhymes at thirteen. You did literally all of the hip hop art forms except for DJing. Were you a DJ at any point? That's funny. In the last couple of years, I've started DJing parties, and it's been <laughs> a lot of fun. I've always wanted to do that because I know intuitively I can feel a crowd, and I know I know what they want to hear. I know it's a feeling. 
you know what needs to be played. Because being on the other side of that, you know when the DJ does that thing and they intuitively have understood where the crowd is going now emotionally or you know what the vibes are and being able to take the crowd on that journey. So, you know, I really, I, I, you know, I, I finally got some turntables and some things, you know, last couple of years. Um, during the pandemic, I did a show on Clubhouse. Uh, it was called The Speakeasy. It blew up. I got to 4 million followers doing that show. Um, we did some iconic stuff on there. Um, just some incredible moments with some incredible guests. Um, you know, we had, we had Uncle Russ on there. You know, we had Steve Rifkin on there. You know, we had a we had a bunch of well-known rappers and artists on the show, actors, etc. But the one feature to the show was we played music um, because it was called the Speakeasy, and we wanted to kind of uh, replace the feeling that people couldn't get because they're all locked down inside by pretending that I was a bartender and a DJ and asking people who would who I bring up on on stage in Clubhouse what their favorite drink was and playing their favorite song. And it brought back that feeling that people really yearned for. And then when I, you know, when we came out of the pandemic, so to speak, I guess we're still in it. But once we came out of lockdown, um, I started really wanting to do that. So I started DJing. But you go back to my roots. And yes, you know, I was doing breakdance competitions at 2 a.m. in South London as an eight-year-old. <laughs> my brother sneaking me out of the house. us going on the train in South London in front of five, six hundred people outdoors in a tent. Huge tent, wow. uh, in yeah, like I said, in South London doing breakdance competitions, and that was kind of that was that was fun when I was a kid. And then my my stepdad he had over over two hundred fifty thousand vinyls in the house, so you know we we grew up around all sorts of genres of music, and we always had a tour de force uh, education in music every weekend, you know, because you know our house was filled with music. So I you know I definitely came up. I definitely came up around that when you talk about DJs because he was a DJ. My stepdad was. Interesting. That that picture of you playing uh, breakdancing in front of hundreds of people is so interesting. Growing up in Chicago, being 22 years old in the underground hip hop scene, I've seen everything except for large breakdance competitions. I'm sure they were around, but it wasn't as common. Uh, do you feel like your roots in hip hop and in uh, building culture from the ground up directly kind of reflected your your work as an adult merging culture with technology by far the biggest influence in my life is hip-hop music and hip-hop culture by far um it really gave me the you know rap artists giving me the framework you know of which to build from whether that be rick ross or jay-z from a capitalist standpoint um, whether that be artists like Common from a, from a spiritual standpoint, or whether that be artists from like Nas from a community and wisdom standpoint, um, and just from the just from the the psychology of life, or Wu Tang on brotherhood. I mean, there's you know, you can just go down the line, but just coming up in that culture, being so affected by what I saw, which was aspirational coming up in Europe. All I wanted to do was was absorb hip hop culture, and I wanted to, you know, I just looked up to American culture when I was a kid. I just, once I got to America, that was it. It was a wrap for me. Twelve, thirteen years old, that was, that was it. Uh, but I landed in in the Midwest, in Kansas City. Well, at least uh, 50, 60 miles outside of Kansas City. Um, so it was a bit of a culture shock at first. It wasn't what I expected. <laughs> so you you were in London, and then you came to the Midwest. 
But at one point, your your dad being in the military, you you lived in Germany, and instead mm -hmm. of staying on the American bases, you guys lived in the the. He took you to the countryside to assimilate you into the culture, and you said it did so much for you. You you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, so. Um... Yeah, I've kind of talked about this before. Actually, I talked about this with friends, which is um, there's this there's this 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 part of cultural education that I think more and more young people are missing out on, which is being placed into very difficult positions socially and having to learn the the adaptation practices to be able to maneuver in those environments. When we, like you mentioned, you know, when I was 11, you know, it's weird because you spend your whole life kind of being an outsider in so many ways that it becomes sort of a comfort being an outsider. So, you know, we're 11, I'm 11 years old. We get stationed from, from England. We get stationed in Germany. Uh, and instead of getting base housing, you know, they got a stipend because base housing was full. So my parents, at the time, they got a stipend to live off base. And uh, so we lived out in what they called the economy, which was in a German town. We just called it living in the economy, which, which meant living, living off base somewhere. But we were about 45 minutes right on the Moselle River in the middle of rural Germany. Uh, nobody who looked like me, nobody who spoke English. And we lived, we lived, we lived upstairs of this wine Winemaker, this old German family, Joseph Reese, he lived downstairs, and we lived in the upstairs condo, which he owned. And we lived in the middle of the vineyards. So they, you know, to take money off of rent, you know, they offered our family, you know, to do a little work because the military didn't pay a lot. My dad wasn't an officer. You know, he was enlisted. So, um, you know, I would, I would be out there doing the labor, you know, get the little pouch on, you know, you know, pulling, pulling, getting trained at 11 years old how to pull the, the grapes off. Had to learn German if I wanted to make friends. And so that's what I did. I, you know, I, I was bored. I was on the weekends. I didn't have anything to do. I was just sitting around in this very rural place in Germany. And there's a few little kids outside. So eventually I learned from being around them. I learned how to, uh, how to speak German. I made friends and I became fluent in German. And then my mom would use me as a translator. She needed to go to the store. I just translate every everything and, and all that. But you know, I, I I tell people like we didn't come up financially rich, but we came up culturally rich. So my privilege mm. is cult my privilege is not financial or economic. My privilege is very cultural. Interesting. You see what I'm saying? So everybody has some privilege somewhere. Everybody does. If they can really think about it. There's something in your life that gave you an advantage. You may not be tapping into it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And you can you can reach into all your experiences and everything you have. And there's some advantage you have somewhere. And that was my cultural privilege was that. But I didn't recognize it as that at the time, you know. And, and then we got based in, like I said, in the States. And so I was starting over again with culture shock and being an outsider because, you know, here I come from England being raised around British people and American people on the, on, on the base in England, all the people, most of the people who were based uh, in England were from the East Coast. So my education in American culture was very New York. Mm -hmm. And so even now, even now, people think 
oh, you're from New York. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not from, I'm not from New York. But they're like, nah, you come, your, your mannerisms, the way you talk, the way you, but, you know, the whole way you come across is, is very New York. But I'm not from New York. It's just, that's how I came up. But once I got to the Midwest, it's culture shock again, because here I was about 50 miles outside of Kansas City in another rural area. And it was, you know, it was rural, rural American culture. And so I didn't fit in again, you know. And that was with everybody, you know, at first. Because even the black kids, I'm like, yo, I, I'm talking to them about what I'm into. And they're like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> <laughs> they had their own artists they listened to. I'd never heard of these artists. They had their own slang. There was very Midwestern. I'd never heard any of this slang. I talked funny to them. So, you know, it was it, it was a process of, you know, you know, fit trying to find my way to fit in again. It was, you know, you know how kids can be. So it was it was bumpy. You know, I had a yeah, I had to get in a few scraps, had to become best friends with the people I got in scraps with after a while. I mean, it, you know, it was it was a process. <laughs> It sounded like you went from being comfortable as an outsider to being comfortable as a relatableer. I know that's not a word, but like you got you, you developed this this attitude and this comfort with being able to just relate to people off the bat. And I'm sure that's impacted your life in various ways. It definitely has, and it's probably become the centerpiece of my career, which is translating different groups. Being able to hear not only what people are trying to say, but what they're, what they, how they feel, what they try, what they want you to feel. This is what they feel, and this is, this, this, this is not only what they said. This is where they're coming from, and you, you know, you might miss that, you know. And so when you, when I look at my career now, I see, you know, um, those those very uncomfortable positions I was put into as a child as, as a huge advantage because, you know, now I'm in a position where I, I do find myself. I translate. Okay, I'm doing this deal between, you know, a rapper from the streets, still from the streets, that mentality to an executive in Silicon right. Valley or, you know, um, a music executive who's hardcore to uh, a tech bro who right. is, you know, went to Stanford, you know, and, and how do you bridge those two worlds so that deals can get done and so that people can can benefit from each other and and actually learn from each other not only transact mm. but build relationships that are that are uh, unconventional relationships and I've seen so many of these really beautiful relationships that uh seem unconventional but once you get people to kind of understand where each other is coming from really beautiful things can really happen when that translation can really happen and that to me is what is what is what diversity is. It's translation of culture between many different mm. sides. And that's not just how somebody looks, that's translating their experiences. It's translating the way that they were raised and what informs their psychology. You see what I'm saying? Translates their values. They they said this because they have a value system that is like this and your value system is like this. And reaching that common ground based upon what the two people are trying to achieve or what they're trying to understand, what they're trying to know. Many times we're looking for these really quick shorthands of like, I know who that person is just by looking at them or just hearing a couple of words. And it just takes more work than that sometimes to really understand where people are coming from. And in a world where information's moving just that fast, we're online, we're making snap judgments, we don't have time for that. A lot of things, a lot of value, a lot of learning, 
a lot of really cool interactions get missed or never happen because of that. And so I think that's where there's a huge opportunity, and it's only becoming an even bigger opportunity with the way the world is now. That's fascinating. You said that sometimes people in positions of power aren't uh, discriminating against talent insidiously, but they don't have the life, social, or world experience to be able to see and value people for who they are. So do you think the solution is having a bias towards people who do have that insight into talent of all kinds, or what do you think? You might have to rephrase the question. I'm not sure I totally... Um, in, in, helping, in helping translate insight to corporate executives like you have before, or in supporting leaders of the future, how do we help people see talent where it hasn't been seen before? Yeah, look, I think it, uh, I, I think it's important to understand that all the systems we have in place exist for a reason, but they have limitations. And there might have been a good reason for a system to exist during a certain period of time, but now we're in new times, and that system might have been totally relevant for this time and completely irrelevant for that for this new time. And I think as as culture shifts, as people shift, as the world changes, economies shift. We go through a you know we go through a global economy. There's geopolitical shifts. There's cultural shifts. All of these things are happening in real time. The world that, that these the systems are built for is not the same world 10 years later. And that's the same thing for all the social rules that we make. Many of the social rules that existed 20 years ago are completely outdated for today. The social rules that we have right now are going to be outdated in five years. And so when we make, you know, kind of these dogmatic ideologies and we build them on top of the systems... It makes it really hard to change mm. and and tune the systems for what's happening now. Sure. So many of the rules that we've already made are already outdated, and so the systems are rigid because we've built we've we've built uh, systems change rules that won't allow us without all this consensus. Right, there has to be consensus for the systems changes. And if you want to look at that in kind of a computer science kind of a way of looking at it, but it's very true. Because we are unified systems, that's what networks are, human beings are. We all, you know, our psychology is the software, our body is the hardware, we connect with each other, that's the networks. All of those things are, too, are true, and the operating system is, is society and culture, right? And so to make, to upgrade or change the operating system, right, where all the apps and the network we're connected to is the world, to change the operating system, right, there has to be all this consensus, but when we make all these rigid rule changes, like there has to be, there has to, it's really, really hard to build in the plasticity and flexibility needed uh, to build new systems. And so ultimately what you need is people who are fearless to be in the, in the middle of, the, of culture saying things that right now are unacceptable because what they're talking about is the new thing. Right. What they're talking about is the new systems that need to be built. And ultimately those people are are kind of, they kind of sacrifice themselves for the new thing to happen. And so the world is ultimately resistant to that because we get codified around the around we get codified around what change what change happened in the past and why we needed the systems that exist. Ultimately the rules we make, there's good rules, there's good reasons for those rules to exist, but then the world changes again. And so you need people you need people with a systems approach to understand that People are changing and the world is changing. Instead of creating uh, dogmatic ideologies and frameworks, what I need to do is create the environment for new ideas and the infrastructure that supports the individuality of human beings. 
And so if you, if you create an environment like that, you're going to take an approach to human beings on an individual basis, understanding that there are certain experiences that you have that are uniquely yours, that there's no way we can get the ideas that we need to pop off unless we have you. Because you're uniquely informed, uniquely talented, and uniquely gifted, and all of, those, all of those factors combined inside of you, specifically you, are what we need in order to move this particular idea forward. And I think with that kind of approach, it's, 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 it's harder to do that uh, because, like I said, human beings need consensus because we want rules to govern everybody to help us all move cohesively together very quickly. But in that, we lose a lot of individuality and we lose a lot of what makes human beings individually special as well. Mm. And so it's a balance. It's a real balance and there's no easy answer to this, and everybody wants to create all these easy answers. And and um, w- one thing that I have noticed happening is is you have, you know, both sides coming up with uh, kind of mimetic warm- warfare, which uh, reduces human beings into memes, and then you just have people just throwing memes back and forth at each other as as they move uh, more more solidified into their own ideologies. And so that that in and of itself is kind of antithesis to the uniqueness of human beings. I speak, I, when I think of the world, I think of it from a spiritual standpoint. I sit and I, you know, I sit with this and I, and, I, and I think there's millions of people that came before me. There's going to be millions of people that come after me, hopefully, right? And I'm only one person in one time and one moment. I'm here specifically at this time for a reason. What is it? And to be in the moment of, of where I'm at and to create authentically out of the energy that is uniquely mine and protect that. And I think that's what people are yearning for. They they feel the individuality they have. They want to be they want to be members of a cohesive and functioning and healthy society, while at the same time expressing their individuality and being given the being given the room to do that. And so I I, I think it's not an easy thing to solve. But I also think that we need leaders who understand that you know it's there's not there's not going to be a shortcut to this. Right now, I think we have a lot of different leaders in a lot of industries that just see the warfare, and they see it as a way to use it as an insertion point for leverage to power instead of leverage to freedom of the people, freedom of expression for the people. It's a leverage to power for people. And so you see a lot of power capture going on, which is very, very destructive socially. Wow. That's why I often say that modern education, well, current education system in society tends to sandpaper people down uh, so at Andreessen Horowitz, you ran the Talent Opportunity Initiative where you looked for cultural geniuses. So I'm very curious, like, what did you do to try and find these cultural geniuses? So the theory is, is that there's, there, there are people that don't fit into, into the system, the, the, the conveyor belt system that we've built to identify and then operationalize talent into the economy. And so because there's all this talent that sits outside of that, we're effectively, as an economy at large, we're missing on a lot of productivity. We're, listening, we're, missing, on, we're missing out on a lot of new art, um, like I said, economic productivity. And, and we're just missing out on the next, let's, let's say, let's just use Virgil as, 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 a, as an example. Rest in peace to Virgil Abloh. Incredible impact on art, design, fashion, etc., doesn't come from the central casting kind of main character <laughs> factory. 
that America has set up. That's a white way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Especially Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has built a very, you know, an archetypal identification process around software multiples specifically. And now as we look at it, we know now that, especially for consumer companies, it's not just building a great product. It's does anybody give a fuck? How do you know people care about the new thing? And this is where what I just said previously is that, which is the people building the innovation thing, the new things, are the people that intuitively understand the way that the structure, the way that the systems and, and the way the world is structured today ultimately needs to be broken, but it needs to be broken with value. So I need to, I need to, I need to engage in creative destruction, which is I need to disrupt what's going on in the current system by creating this new thing which is going to create this entirely new behavior. And this, this entirely new behavior amongst human beings and consumers is going to create all this massive value which shareholders are going to benefit from. But in order for that to happen, I have to have the people that are creating the new shorthand, the new cultural shorthand, because that's what needs to get translated into the code that becomes a new product that everybody wants to adopt. And I, so I think thinking kind of, five steps ahead of everybody else. It's like, okay, if you match the cultural geniuses with the technical geniuses, you essentially have the perfect situation when you're building new value. But we just don't have a system to identify cultural geniuses. More than likely, they didn't, go to, they didn't work at Google or Facebook, Airbnb or Uber. More than likely, they don't know what, the, they don't know what venture capital even is. More than likely you're going to find them in completely different places on the internet. Find them on Reddit. Find them building their own, you know, their own sites, their own ways. Find them in, 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 on different college campuses, maybe on HBCU campuses. Maybe you're going to find them in, in different cliques. Maybe they're going to be an up-and-coming young kid who's designing stuff for Drake inside of the OVO clique. And this kid's, you know, a genius. Same way kind of like Virgil came up. But... Finding where the kind of where where where's the heat map for what's bubbling up? What are what are what are the signs that tell me this particular institution, this crew, this geographic area, you know, these social hangouts, these subreddits, you know, are the places to look. And then when you do find them there, these are the signs that the, the genius is happening. Like. They're creating a new language. They're creating a new way to communicate. You know, I, I, I met a genius recently. His name is David Sebastian. He signed to Warner Records. I think he's that. I think he's exactly that. He's found an entirely new way to communicate concepts. And his artistic expression is exploding in music, fashion, uh, civic service, in everything, in, in what he's doing. And is I, I think he's incredible, and he's kind of what I'm talking about. So, looking for more of those types of people, and then and then putting money in, in, into what they do um, as a long tail investment, not only into into their ventures today, but into who they are in the long term, building a relationship and helping them. Many times, creatives don't have the operational expertise to right. take their to take their creative explosion. And put operational discipline behind it to take it to a mass market audience. And so sometimes what you want to do is 
pair them with those operators that can take this gigantic explosion of creative energy, of source energy that's coming out in the world from them, and actually turn it into uh, a product vision, right, that can scale operationally. So um, that's been the mission. That was the mission of TXO, is to do that. Um, you know, shout out to, to, to my homie Kofi Amparu, who is now, you know, who I, you know, I, I, I handed off the, the baton to uh, when I left to go do Royal. Um, very, very capable young man, you know, and love what he's doing with, with TXO. But that's, that's the thesis, and it's, it's a more broad thesis than TXO, but TXO is an experiment um, uh, meant to kind of prove that this, this, this is real. This is a real theory. Could you describe more of what ideal environment you envision that would facilitate the communion and camaraderie of technical and cultural geniuses? Could you ask that another way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether whether <laughs> it's a, a like like a co-working space or an event or um, an incubator or something, what kinds of environments uh, make it easier for technical and cultural geniuses to connect and collaborate? Um, just relaxed environments for everybody to sit around and just like be able to spat, just completely, just like just like lose their minds and go crazy over ideas, right? Just to be able to like connect with each other, share ideas, like a party, you know? <laughs> yeah, <a> party. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which is why I love parties because I can bring people together and it's mm. just like if the vibes, if the, if, the, if the vibrational frequencies are right, you could bring people together and they just like, you can just have these crazy conversations, right? Because everybody's kind of in an elevated space. The vibes are good, and you can kind of get people to translate to each other. But, like, environments like that, I think social environments where people can sit down and, like, breaking bread together. That's why I like doing dinners, too. Mm. Um, but environments that are relaxed and where, where it's like, I'm not trying to be this thing. I'm just trying to, like, learn from you. You can learn from me. The vibes are high. It's social. It's chill. I love environments like that because people intuitively will, they say water finds its own level, people will intuitively gravitate towards what's kind of exciting them. And I've seen that happen over and over again. So I just, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that, that, that's a great answer. You tweeted, it's June 2013, 3 a.m. I'm in Zuckerberg's backyard singing Smashing Pumpkin songs. Drew Houston is playing the guitar. Kanye singing along. And you have Ikea furniture and you never met any of them. Yeah, so I'm in Mountain View. I got a little apartment, you know, I'm startup struggle. I'm you know, I got two kids living in an apartment, got my startup going, I'm a founder. This is, you know, twelve years ago. Um you know, I sold everything I owned, I liquidated my credit cards, I, you know, to to fund my startup. You know, I was the original investor in my startup and I just wanted to do it. So I was all in. And so, you know, I kinda Busted myself down to nothing financially to do it. And so here I am in this apartment. I'm making Ikea furniture. Um, and um, I get a call from, from Ben one night, which Ben, you know, shout out to the homie. That's, that's family to me. Uh, that's one of my brothers. That's one of my best friends, Ben Horowitz. Shout out. Uh, I get a call and he's like, yo, I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, yo, I'm, uh, 
I'm with Jesus right now. You, you know, you got to come through. So um, <laughs> I'm like, yo, I dropped everything. I uh, peel over to the house. And the first thing I hear is black skinhead playing over the stereo. You know, I can hear it from the outside. I'm just like, what? It's <laughs> happening. So I go in there, and, and Ye is on the couch, and he's like going crazy. Ben sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yo, what? I've never met, I've never met Ye before. I'm like, yo, what up, Ye? And Ye's like, yo, <laughs> what up? So I sit down next to Ye, and we did a little album listening party, and uh, doing all the lyrics to Jesus. Looking at Ye next to me, just doing the lyrics, and I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? So as the night continues on, a few people come and they're like, "Yo, um, let's go over Zuckerberg's house because Zuckerberg, you know, he needs to meet Ye." And Ben's like, "You want to ride with me?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, for sure, I want to ride with you." So we went over to Zuck's house and. You know, it's his house in Palo Alto, and we're chilling in the backyard. And like I said, Drew House was there, and you know, and Zuck's like, "Can I get you some water?" And I'm like, "Yes, Mark, you can. Thank you, appreciate that. <laughs> That's crazy." <laughs> and he and he had, he had the you know the dog that looks like a mop jumps up on me and got the glass of water, and you know we're just sitting around talking, and Drew starts playing the, playing Mark's guitar, and, and then I start you know. I started singing, you know, despite all my rage, I'm still, and we, you know, we just vibing out on some on some stuff, and, and you know, singing Smashing Pumpkin songs. It was two a.m., and I'm sitting here, and I'm like, okay, I'm in Mark Zuckerberg's backyard in Palo Alto with Ye and Drew Houston, and Drew Houston. And, you know, it was a crazy night. It was one of those things that can can only happen during that era. It was a very very magical era of Silicon Valley. So that was. Uh, that was that was that was my crazy night with Zuck and Ye. That is unbelievable. That is so interesting. Wow. Um, speaking of Ben Horowitz, and shout out to Ben Horowitz, my favorite VC. The moment I found out a VC could be friends with Kanye and Nas and all these people that I felt like I was friends with in similar ways, I was like, "Whoa, you can merge the worlds." Um, you know, I had met I had uh, met Ben at a, at a founder dinner. Uh, when I first got to Silicon Valley, and I was uh, uh, I was roommating in, in a in a hacker house with like Chris Lyons and like uh, James Norman and a few other people in uh, in the Sunset. So <laughs> we went to this dinner one night, and it was with Ben, and, and he was breaking down how Lil Weezy lyrics um, relate to business, and I'm just like, yo. That's crazy. No one ever has taken rap at that point in time. No one had ever taken like really taken rap lyrics and translated them onto like how you manage your board of directors and like you know um, how you solve employee disputes and like you know how you know fundraising or like product problems and like translated lyrics into like how to solve that stuff. And I was just like, that was super fascinating. Obviously, That's specific. After, yeah, you know, I mean, it, at the time he was writing a blog all the time called Ben's blog, which I don't even know if it's up any up anymore. Iconic blog posts uh in, from like two thousand thirteen to two thousand seventeen, some of the most iconic blog posts ever written. 
um, the most iconic of which is called The Struggle. I don't even know that one exists, but it talks about the founder struggle. Um, and uh, after the dinner, you know, everybody's, you know, they're rushing Ben. Um, but uh, Ben's wife, Felicia, was there at the dinner. And so uh, I got a chance to really just kick it with Felicia. And we're just, you know, chopping it up. Felicia's from Compton, California. And so we're just talking about Compton and family and, and all this other stuff. And I told her about the business. And then, you know, she introduced me to Ben. And, and, and we just clicked. And, and, and like, Ben is, the, like, one of the realest human beings. And just having a chance to see how Ben operates behind the scenes um, just the authenticity and just the realness of that person and Felicia also, the way that they both individually operate and collectively operate behind the scenes. A lot of people don't know. They don't do a lot of things that they, they don't do for fanfare. Um, <sighs> it's just, it, just real human beings, and I've had the pleasure to be mentored by Ben um, for the last 10 years, 11 years, and, and, and be a friend and, and befriend and, and be a brother to, to, to Ben and vice versa. And, and uh, you know, it's a real brotherhood, man. And, and uh, respect to my brother there because he's, he's a real one. So, yeah. After the, I ran that company for four years. We scaled it to 12 cities. Um, it didn't work. Scaled it too fast. The unit economics of the business completely went upside down. And, you know, I was bankrupt. I poured all my money into the company. It was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, you know, I was getting recruited by a few different companies, you know, in the Valley to come join their teams. And I get this incredible call from Ben one day. And he's like, yeah, forget that. Don't work for them. Come work for us. We're going to make history. We're going to do some some great things together. And uh, my experience at A16Z was just incredible it's it's going to it's going to go down easily as the 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 highlight of my entire career um just the things that happened while i was there for seven years i i will never forget the people the 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 things that we did the things that we accomplished the incredible things that we all accomplished together and uh just shout out to 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 ben mark scott cooper jeff jordan frank chen everybody over there um that, that, that we built together, uh, we did some amazing things. And even my team, you know, uh, Redeema, Ahuja, you know, they're just all kinds of people that, that I will never forget the times and the moments and the things that we built together and, and, and kind of just the mentorship from Ben during that process. Uh, it, was just, it was just an incredible, incredible time in my career. Wow. That's awesome. Hearing that directly from you. I mean, Andreessen Horowitz has provided probably the best entrepreneurial slash startup content that I've that helped me kind of assimilate certain ideas into my head when I was a teenager you talked about uh, you and Ben echo this idea of the story of the entrepreneur and 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 hip-hop being so so similar coming from nothing to becoming great and uh, do you want to talk more about the similarities between uh, hip-hop and being an entrepreneur yeah, hip hop is a revolutionary language, and it's not. Uh, it's not the, the the connection between revolutionary movements and capitalism is not exactly a smooth transition. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> okay. But between startup capitalism, startups have to do something very similar. You know, with a very small group of people, they have to usurp 
the existing systems by starting a revolution because somebody somewhere isn't being served correctly or the new thing that needs to exist. And so um, starting from starting something from nothing is an incredible amount of self-belief. You think about Biggie wearing a Coogee sweater in the in the Juicy video, talking about when I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this 50-inch screen leather, leather sofa. Like... Right. Carnos about four G's flat. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like he was still in bed style when he did that. He was still on the block when he shot that video. So there's this kind of this reality distortion field that human beings intuitively that want that have this thing inside of them. They're able to imagine themselves and imagine the new thing as if it's already there to them. This distortion field, the reality distortion field, is their force field to be able to go and build the new thing. But you have to be incredibly courageous and smart, and you have to be convincing. You know, the reason why Biggie blew up is because you felt him. Whatever you was feeling about your life, what you wanted to do, what you wanted to achieve, when you listened to that music, it made you feel it too. It made you feel, I can do this too. Right. And that's that's a startup founder when they're talking to new employees and talking to investors. They're singing juicy to them. Right. That's that's the energy of that song is the same energy a startup founder brings in front of investors, new employees, customers. They're basically rapping juicy. Right. And for me, that seemed obvious from an energetic standpoint of where rap being such an aspirational uh, uh, uh artistic uh, expression that you can you can relay the same energy of ambition the same energy of aspiration of going from absolutely nothing to something whereas all of these reasons exist why you should be counted out why you should never come back you should never succeed and yet here you are talking as if those reasons don't even matter I've already succeeded not only that I'm the best. I'm the best in the world. And just because you don't see it yet, it does not mean that I'm not the best in the world. It means it hasn't materialized yet, but I'm going to materialize it. I'm going to manifest it. And that's what I'm telling you. This is my manifesto. I'm going to manifest all of these things. And that to me is kind of the spiritual feeling the founders have to have. And they convey that to their teams. They evangelize that to their teams, investors, customers, etc. And if you have that, the special few who have that, you don't count. You don't count them out. You don't. You don't bet against them. You bet on them. You know. And you know, I had that energy. You know, when I walked into Andreessen Horowitz for the first time to pitch my company, I did not have a product yet. I was building it. Uh, I didn't have customers yet. I had partners that were big partners that had agreed to come on board. Press loved the idea. I was able to gin up some press. So I was in Fast Company. I was in Wall Street Journal. I was in all these places without even having the product launch yet. That's how strong the concept was. Fast Company and Forbes and Wall Street Journal are writing on this thing like this is, this is it, what this guy's building. And it hadn't even launched yet. All I had was a launch page, but the launch page was getting hit so hard. People wanted that thing to be, you know, they wanted that thing to exist. And then I had some engineers in the company who are moonlighting who 
who worked in the day at Andreessen Horowitz portfolio companies. So it's having them on my deck as my, my engineering team, having six people who are like very senior inside of portfolio companies uh, on my on my pitch deck as being in the company and building code for the company at night, told them that this kid from the Midwest, he he's able to get press, he's able to get engineers who have really good jobs to work on this at night for equity only. Um, and he's walking in the door with this, like, doesn't care mentality, like, this is going to be the future. And that's kind of how you have to get started. Um, but then you have to prove it. you got to execute once you get started and, and once people start believing in you. Now people are trusting you with their livelihoods. And that's the hard side of it because when the company failed, which it did, all of that comes crashing back down on you, right? And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, that's going to happen to you a few times, and if you're not strong, you stop believing because you're like, I believed in this stuff once. I believed in myself. I did all this and then it fell down on me because it hurts. It hurts to say to somebody, you believed in me and now I got to lay you off. Mm. It hurts to say to investors, your money's not coming back. You believed in me, you know, and I made this stupid decision. And so going through that, I think ultimately allowed me to come into Andreessen Horowitz and sit with some of the seed and A-stage founders understanding the psychology of building a company, you know, and those hours and that stress and raising another round. And it might not be, it might be a down round. And I lost this key employee and now other employees are looking to leave because they love that employee. And just the things that you can go through that really fuck with your psychology when you're trying to do that. Uh, I think it really, my experience in life before becoming a founder and then capped by being a founder and going through that ultimately helped me be, helped me be, I hope helped me to be valuable to many of the, the founders that, that I was able to spend time with while working at Andreessen Horowitz and many of which I met during their seed round, a few of which now run public companies and I'm so proud of them uh, and I've maintained those relationships. But, you know, being able to meet them before they were the bell of the ball, before they were hot shit, you know what I'm saying, uh, and knowing what it, what it was and knowing, you know, it's the psychology of building a company. It's the emotional discipline of building a company. It's what if there is no tomorrow? I've told everybody we're going to win, and now I'm staring in the abyss. I've mm -hmm. got the thousand-yard stare to nowhere right now because of what's going on in front of me. Um, being able to make people understand that. And then seeing people be triumphant despite failure. Seeing people lose everything, go bankrupt, company goes under, and then they come right back six months later with the new company. And, like, we're going again. And seeing that, you know, um, and then seeing them succeed ultimately. That, to me, is so rewarding just to see the unflappable nature of the human spirit. If you believe you've lost, if you believe you're a victim, you believe you can't make it, you've lost, right? Because the truth is bad stuff's going to happen to you. The truth is, it's going to be really hard. The truth is, you're going to get hit with things that are not fair. That's just what's going to happen. That's just life. It's not what's going to happen to you. It's how you respond to that. It's ultimately how you respond. Can you stay the course? And, um, you know, and, and, and that's kind of, that's where I come from. You know, and my whole life has been that because I've walked through some tremendous shit in my life that 
I would never change. And I've had people ask me that. They're like, would you, if you could go back in time, would you change that? No, I wouldn't change a thing. Not a thing. Wow. You, you just spit straight facts only. Like, there's no waste of words. Okay, so a lot of people uh, watching this are from Chicago. And you've said that Chicago is a ridiculously under-tapped ecosystem. Its moment is fast approaching. So uh, could you tell us more about why you think that? Yeah, so when people zig, you got to zag. When, 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 when people are being fearful, that's when it's time to be greedy. When people are being greedy, that's when it's time to be fearful. Chicago's a world-class city. It always has been. It has the infrastructure. So you look at the, you look at the ingredients for the recipe. If you want to bake a cake, you got to have all the things. You got to have the eggs, the flour, the sugar. You got to have the, the shortening, all that. You got to have it all there, right? All the ingredients are there. What's happening, what's happened in Chicago over the last 20 years has caused people to think that Chicago's always going to be down. And I just think that's ridiculous. You look at the talent that's come out of Chicago to be successful in other places. There is zero reason why with the financial infrastructure that actually does exist in Chicago, it isn't, being, isn't yet being deployed. Hmm. There's alpha there, in my opinion. It's a big city. Um, there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, whoever steps up to take leadership roles in the city, both politically and uh, in economic ventures, financial ventures in the city, I think is going to benefit greatly in the next 10 to 20 years. As soon as a city is at its lowest point that you know is a world-class city or is at a low point, or, or at least the media wants to say that it is at its lowest point, and I'm not saying any metro area is perfect. You can go look at all of these metro areas that people applaud and laud, even San Francisco, and you can see that these, these areas have, they have their issues. Um, but Chicago is an incredible city with incredible culture, incredible food, incredible culture around the food, incredible ties into, into hip-hop story, incredible ties into fashion, so from, from a consumer standpoint, in my opinion, I think Chicago is alpha. And that there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people who want to build there. Um, it is going to take some work. It's going to take the political leadership of the city, the economic leadership of the city, coming together and creating an environment where people can cook. Allow people to stay in Chicago and cook. That's it. Um, and and I think I think we're approaching I think we're approaching a time where that's going to happen. There's a lot of new funds being launched. I got friends launching new funds, um, existing funds that are, that have raised, even in this environment, have raised new funds. And and um, I think it's a cool city. And I'm starting to see just new kind of hot spots all over the city of like creativity starting to bubble up. It's early. It's very early, but I'm bullish on that town, 100%. I'm bullish on that town. Me too. I'd like to uh, thank many of my friends and people I know are part of those. So to wrap this up, um, from my own intuition, I quickly got the sense that you approach your family, your wife, and your kids in a very kind of conscious way filled with awareness. You've said you feel bad for other men who you know who've avoided fatherhood for career, etc. Because you believe those things offer way less meaning. So would you mind telling us about your perspective on fatherhood? Um, and so, so let, me, let, me, let me make sure that I, I caveat and frame this correctly. 
I by no means feel that every single person has to be a parent of children. They don't you know, necessarily have to do it. I, I do think it's ultimately proven that if you're dedicated to being a father, that the outcome is a sharpening of the spirit and a sharpening of the mind in that process. Ultimately, no matter how much I've taught my children, they've taught me at least two times more than I've taught them. And if you're present with your children and you're in their lives, that should be the process. Because once, a, you know, once an adult, twice a child. I'll be a child again if I live long enough, right? I'll go right back to being a child again. That's what elderly people are, right? So once a man, twice a child. That process of life, what I've learned passing on to my children, what, how they see the world clearly without any bias in many cases, except for mine that I put on them, and I try not to. I try to be cognizant of the fact that this is just daddy's experiences I'm projecting on you, but I don't want you to look at it through my eyes. Them giving you a fresh view of life, some, as, you know, even as a five, six-year-old, my son, the things he says sometimes are profound because they're tapped in. And so when you're present with them, it's what keeps you young. I mean, I'm, I'm 48 years old. They've kept me incredibly young, you know. Just tapping in with that in those moments helps you to be really present in the meaning of what this very brief moment is that we call life. And it's a very, very brief moment. It's a lot faster than we think, and it's over. It's gone. You're done. And being present in each moment with them has grounded me into a sense of meaning for what I do every single day. Now, can you find a sense of purpose and meaning without having children? Obviously you can. There's many different ways to get to that. But I see a lot, or I've mentored, and I do mentor a lot of younger men, and some of them have children, and some of them are very present, and some of them are not. And, you know, without judgment, I try to have real conversations with the ones who are not. Not to tell them that they should do this or they should do that. I don't want to come from a place of being above them. But more from a place of, man, I want you to have this too. You know, I don't want you to miss this. There's something that is beautiful and I want you to have it. And you have it, but you don't, you don't have it. You're not grasping it. You're not holding it. And um, I believe fatherhood is transformational for men. I believe family is transformational for men. We've moved, we've moved to a culture where it's, it's all about chasing the bag at all costs. And I just believe personally my own values is some costs are too high. There's a lot of things I could have done by now that I could have actually moved my career even further ahead than where it's at. And I've had a great career. I'm not, I'm not by any means uh, mad about where my career is. But I didn't do those things because I felt like I learned a lesson while I was running my company. The first two years of running my company when I was away from my children for those years, that I would never do that again. Because I realized what I, what I missed, I can't ever get back. No matter what, I can't get that back. Those moments, those things that I got from that, I can't ever get them back. And that, that should apply to all your loved ones, whether you have children or not. And that includes your friends and family who you love, who you consider loved ones. Don't take for granted that they're going to be there tomorrow. Make sure that you set aside intentional space, not only just to be around them, but to be real, open, and vulnerable around them. Create enough space and intentionality to know that these moments are all that we own. You know, we got all these clothes and cars and all this other stuff. We don't own that. The only thing we own is this moment right now. Like me here with you, that's why I'm present right here with you. Because 
This is a part of my life right now that I'm spending with you right now on this podcast. So I'm very present in this moment. Uh, that's because there'll never be another moment like this again. You know what I'm saying? The person I am today on this podcast, I'm going to be a different person tomorrow. I'm going to be a completely different person the next week and the next year from now. So I'm only going to be this person now, having this moment with you as this person that you are right now. And I don't take that for granted. So when you think about your children, that's your legacy. It's just amplified. That All of that is just amplified. And so um, I do talk to people about that. I do talk to them about, you know, our generation is kind of the Peter Pan generation. We want to party as long as possible. We want to live, we want to live, that, we want to live that swipe life as long as possible. Be on them date naps, be in the streets, all that. You know, uh, you know 35, 36, 37 years old, 40 years old, you know, still, still at the parties in Miami and L.A. and all over the place and doing all that. Um, it's all good, but slow down, have your fun, but slow down and, and, and make sure to anchor your life as well. Whether that's children, which I, I believe for me it's children, and, and it's the very obvious answer, um, but whether it's children or not, make sure to balance your life and anchor your life in something that, that, that ultimately gives you meaning for what you do and why you wake up in the morning. Uh, that's, all I, that's, that, that's, that's really my message to men. Thanks for watching and listening. Reach out to Nate Jones via his social media. Links are in the description. Masks are included as well.